Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Good morning, Marjorie. Hey, Claire. How are you today? I'm really well. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. I can't believe we're into September already. I know. I know. And this is the first September. I've only had two children, not three, going back to school. Oh, yeah. It all gets really real, doesn't it? When they sort of start to prepare to go off to university, you know, and I know you've got the same this month. Yeah. Heading down south, heading away and thinking about what they need. It's a completely different thing than thinking, have you got all your uniform packed thing? They don't need uniform. Exactly. Our babies. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Mind you, there's still plenty to be doing to getting the two organized and make sure they're in the right place on the right day at the right time wearing the right thing. I know, but I do think it's a different thing when, you know, they need actually five days worth of clothes <laughs> that can be seen in rather than just two. Yeah. And as you say, there's plenty still to be getting into school and making sure they've got all their pencils and, and haven't lost them in the first two weeks. I don't know about your kids school, but mine don't give out punishments in the first two weeks because, you know, they all get used to things. But after that, it's all fair game. So we're about there now with the kids having to make sure they've got everything they need all the time and everything. And the big ones at home kind of laughing, saying, I don't have to do this anymore but um someday you know if we're still podcasting by then someday you and i'll be raising a glass when my littlest who's a year younger than yours heads off that'll be us with none of them in the house will we be celebrating or crying or well, both? i don't know we're not we're not quite empty nesters yet are we no no but i do love this time of year you know i do always really love that kind of as things start to change for autumn and that turn in the weather and it's much more pronounced at home you know I kind of remember the crisp days those first crisp days I don't know cooking autumn fruits and you know walks in the woods and all those sorts of things that kind of don't feel very summery there's just something different about doing all those things this time of year which I'm really looking forward to and putting the mayhem of summer behind us a bit of order is called for I think this time of year absolutely and of course we've got the Wigtown Book Festival to look forward to at the end of this month Yeah, so this year, we're not only going to be attending some events at the Wigtown Book Festival, like we did at the Edinburgh Book Festival, but we'll be launching our very own open book pamphlet as part of the Wigtown Book Festival at the end of this month. The details for that are in our newsletter, which is on our website at openbookreading.com. But it's really exciting because normally we put that pamphlet together for the end of the year and have a kind of Christmas celebration. This year, we're ahead of the mark and um, we're delighted to be able to show some of the work written across all of our community groups and public groups in a physical pamphlet and have readings from some of those participants. So we really hope you'll join us, if not to read, to listen. And if you'd like to buy a copy, you can do so (laughs) on our website. (laughs) That money is really um, a donation that helps us carry on with our work and goes towards the cost of producing that pamphlet. And it's really important for our writers, particularly our community writers, to have a voice for us to be able to enable them to put their words on a page. and, And some of that work will be group writing, And then to read it out loud and for you to turn up and hear it, it's really important for them to feel like someone's listening. So we've had such great responses to the pamphlet in the past. We really hope you'll join us for that event this year. And today we've got a great new story from Catherine Wilson, who's a friend of Open Book, called The Forthcoming Me, as well as a poem by D.H. Lawrence. Shall I start off with the story? Yeah, perfect. The Forthcoming Me. The letter looked so average, fresh from a stock photograph. The text inside was simple. Who are you? I thought of all the preposterous things I could scribble down and throw into the universe. 
a queen of Morningside, an astronaut, a successful high-flying writer. I settled for the more boring truth. I outlined my life until it fit on the back of an A4 piece of paper. It wasn't difficult. It was nicely contained with a nine-to-five job, one husband, no children, a bus pass, a rented house, a broken microwave. I folded the letter into a paper bird and set it flying out the window. Days later, as I dragged myself and the supermarket bags of milk, eggs and bread onto my doorstep, I spotted an origami crane nesting in the tree at the bottom of my garden. I laid my messages down, pulled the bird down and locked myself in the bathroom to read it. Your life is mine, the letter said, just like a shadow. I found a pen and scribbled harshly, but who are you? And scrunched the letter into a tight ball and kicked it down the lane. Of course, after several days, it rolled back to me in its own time. I don't know, it said I've forgotten. With that, I'd had enough mystery. I hid it under the knives and forks in the cutlery drawer, pressed against the order of service with the faded photograph of my grandmother. I tried to forget about it. The next day, as I sat on the rattling bus home from work, I repeated the steps of my evening ahead. Get in, use the loo, change clothes, turn on the stove, make dinner, do dishes, pack a bag, lay out clothes. To me, it was a song, a repetitive beat a child could dance to on a chalked street corner. I was always so afraid of forgetting. The knowledge I could beat my husband home and surprise him with dinner warmed me against the cold window. Get in, use the loo. Three stops away. Change clothes. Turn on the stove. I got off the bus and practically raced down the street. Make dinner, do dishes, pack bag. I turned out my pockets on my coat. I laid my bag on the ground and started unzipping frantically. I took everything out of my bag. I put everything in my bag. I did it again. It was no use. I'd forgotten my keys. Shall we stop there for a minute? Oh, yeah. There's so much in this story to try and figure out, don't you think? I love that image of sending messages out your window and finding answers. It almost reminds me of a child. I don't know. But for the husband, I might think that this narrator was a child. Yeah, I mean, I remember as my daughter, she's probably old enough to hear this now if she was listening to this podcast, but she used to leave letters for the fairies at the bottom of the garden that I used to reply to. (laughs) Me too. Me too. I think it might have been about the same time. Yeah. But I love that idea of asking questions and sending them out the window. But the curious thing is about getting a reply. For me, it was curious to answer. If you found a letter on your doorstep and you didn't know who it was from and you didn't recognize anything about it that just said, who are you? Would you answer it? I wondered if it was her, her answering it herself. You know, as you get into the, you know, I thought that was curious. And then as we got into the, you know, the repetition in her head, I wondered about whether she was leaving herself the answers and forgetting because she's always so frightened of forgetting. That makes me think, well, maybe she is a forgetful person and so maybe she's answered and forgotten or maybe there's two parts of her playing this game with herself or maybe it's a question that she doesn't actually know the answer to that she's asking herself it's an internal dialogue 
she's saying, but who are you? So she's curious about who's asking her these questions, but then not freaked out enough to not answer, which I find strange. I mean, as you say, if you had this letter, I might answer it. I might think that's an interesting thing, but I'm not sure I would kick, scrunch it up and kick it down the road, particularly a question like, who are you? And, you know, are you scrunching it up and kicking it down the road with an expectation that it will find its way to the person who wrote it? Very different from leaving letters for the fairies in a very specific spot and looking for the answer in that spot. For sure. And then I guess the last one, she puts the answer in the cutlery drawer. So I guess maybe the others are sending them out into the world. But the last one, when she says, I don't know, I've forgotten. That feels like an admission in some ways of some kind. The other letter, the one in the crane, is a kind of just the boring truth. Stuff that's on it is public already. One husband, no children, a bus pass. You know, but all that stuff seems like stuff that you would be happy to be forward facing out in the world. But that I don't know, I've forgotten seems so personal that for me that's why she sticks it in the cutlery drawer and doesn't send it out the window ah see i read that differently i read that as the answer from the original initiator of the who are you letter oh maybe you're right actually she gets the question who are you and she puts in all the husband children and then sends it away with the response who asking back and she gets the answer your life is mine just like a shadow and then she scribbles, who are you? And scrunches it in the tight ball, kicks it down the lane. And then the answer is, I don't know, I've forgotten. I think. Oh, it could be read either way because it could yeah, be, totally. I, I don't know is the answer. And then she writes, I've forgotten. Either way, I feel like it's it's hit a nerve because she sticks it under, she sticks it in the cutlery drawer next to the prized photograph. Yeah. And we learn in the next paragraph that she's always so afraid of forgetting. So regardless, as you say, it's hit a nerve and triggered something in her that she's worried about. Yeah, and it's like that, that, so let's get on to that mantra, you know, that kind of get in. I mean, can you imagine our mantras? I just, the the mind boggles with four children. (laughs) I mean, you know me, you know I like a list. I know. Um, But even this, for me, is beyond. I used to think I was organized till I became best pals with Claire. And then now I look wildly disorganized. You love a list. I love a list. I do love a list. Yeah, but the, the things on her list are are really basic you know it's not like I must remember to pay that bill I must remember to pick up that child at that time yeah and have they got their the right socks or spikes for cricket have they have I taken the dinner out of the freezer you know all those sorts of things that are things I actually really have to remember but use the loo change clothes changing your clothes when you get in from work makes me think she wears a uniform at work but you know it's not something that you would normally put on a list turn on the stove yeah. I mean, it all seems things that are, would be intuitive. And maybe not if you're, you know, the times I've thought I must turn on the stove are when I'm really like, I've got people coming for dinner and I'm, the timing's really tight. So I'll think I must turn on the stove when I get in the house so that when I go to cook it 20 minutes later, the stove is hot. You know, that's the time I would, that would make my list, but not a daily list. And use the loo. Yeah. Do a dishes, pack your bag. And then we get to the point where we realize that she hasn't packed her bag very well because she doesn't have her keys. Yeah, and that, and that made me worried about her in a sort of, you know, I, I think I've increasingly built my concern with her answers to the letter and then her list. And then when I find out she's forgotten the keys, I'm a bit worried about her. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that she's got anxiety or, you know, these are the sorts of things that I have experienced or have other friends have experienced that they need to have little repetitive things that they say in their head that get them through. 
it's an unusual list, but it sounds like it's always the same list. So maybe it's just like a little song that goes through her head, do this, do this, do this. You know, in the way that, you know, when I was really stressed as a child, I would count in my head. I don't know why, but I think it was probably just knowing that at some point in the numbers, you know, the stream of numbers, whatever I was doing would end or the time that I was waiting would end or it was just a way of keeping my brain occupied. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. It feels like she's using it as a way to be busy so that she can't be doing other things or worrying about other maybe more bigger things. Shall we keep going and see what yeah, happens to her? Yeah, read um, on. I will read on. So she's just forgotten her keys. Get in, use the loo, change clothes, turn on the stove. I ran to the park and sat on a bench. It felt like a failure to be found waiting on the doorstep. Proper people don't forget their keys. I huddled myself deeper into my coat as the cold seeped into my legs and the wind chilled my back through the slats. Make dinner, do dishes, pack a bag. I put my head in my hands and repeated the steps to myself. Lay out clothes, lay out clothes, lay out clothes. I eventually circled back. The light in the kitchen was on and I could make out the shape of my husband chopping vegetables through the window. Hello, his voice rang out as I opened the door. He soon appeared in front of me. I could smell pasta cooking. How was your day? he asked. I forced myself to smile. Grand, I answered, just grand. That night I dreamt of my grandmother. I hadn't thought about her in so long that every scene was layered with guilt. She sat in front of a dressing table with a huge mirror. Seeing my reflection, she turned to face me. Only half of her face was painted exactly down the middle. So nice of you to finally join me, she said. I can't stay long, I protested. She pulled out a lined box in sky blue. I balked. I don't want it. I woke up feeling queasy. The feeling increased when I realized the only photograph of her was nestled in the cutlery drawer beside the scrunched up letter. It felt wrong that the only likeness of her in my home was the one so linked to her death. It felt even more wrong that I'd pushed her up against something that had given me nothing but torment. I got out of bed and found the angriest looking red pen in the house. Why have you forgotten? How could you? I tore the letter up and I threw it out the window like pieces of confetti. I watched my letter snow the dirty street and eventually fly away. I remembered the last time I saw her. She was beginning to forget her husband and had long lost the ability to place who I was. Soon, my grandmother's house was wallpapered with post-it notes. They were friendly yellow reminders of where the bowls and cups were kept and how to get a glass of water from the stiff kitchen tap. Any time I tried to settle into the idea her house could be normal, my hand would brush past a note about where to find her underwear or how to shower, and I'd feel like an intruder. One night, when I was staying over, I heard a thump coming from the bedroom. My grandmother had forgotten who my grandfather was and hit him with a bedside lamp. As droplets of his blood hit the floor, she told me her parents couldn't catch her with a boy. I found my husband at the kitchen table. Spread around him were the letters I'd poorly hidden with a photograph. What are these? Why are all these letters in your handwriting? He said. And I sat down to explain. I don't know how these letters work, but somewhere 
in a place I cannot touch. A woman is relearning her life. She teaches herself again how to use a clock, how to use an oven, what bus to get to the shops. Eventually, she'll have to relearn her husband's chapped palms, her own body, her own life. I can't stop that woman because she is me, a future me. I see glimpses of her in my own forgetfulness. She chases me in the reflections on shop windows or closing train doors. It is painful to consider forgetting a twisted birthright of women in my family tree, but that does not lessen it. I sit down at my desk and I write another letter. Boy, I struggled to get to the end of that without tearing up. It's such a moving way to articulate relearning a life rather than losing one, I think. And I think your instinct at the start was right, that she is writing these letters to herself or for herself. Yeah, and forgets, you know, forgets having responded or or else the brain is breaking into two, you know, and um, she doesn't remember having done it. Yeah, I wondered if that that was indicative of the sort of the image of the dream that she had of her grandmother with the only half her face painted sort of made called that to mind that idea of that internal conversation almost between two different voices yeah or the one that's outward looking and the one that's inward looking you know the honest truth and the one that we paint and make up and the mask we put on to go out so yeah I mean I recognize a lot of that and you know my both my grandmothers actually you know were had Alzheimer's I think and uh a version of forgetfulness and we're, we're okay with it really I think but then how do we know whether that's the mask or whether that's you know I think what Catherine does is, is takes us deeper into the into the mind of a woman who is experiencing it which is different than maybe what people project outwardly yeah and, and there's a sense of planning and acceptance and inevitability in it that is almost at, at peace if that's the right way to but it, there doesn't seem to be a raging against the machine sense in this person. No, and I wonder too, you know, I, I love that that description of somewhere there's a woman relearning her own life. It's not like, you know, we often think of this time or this affliction. It can't really be described as anything else, as, as a taking away. And it really is, it's a loss. But actually, if you see it as a as a learning, you know, that you just... It's a different way of being and then it has some positive connotations, I think, that ability to decide things differently, you know. And of course, it's really common to forget, and I think we've talked about it on this podcast, to forget your spouse or and not want this person in your home and that's really difficult. But, you know, the idea that somehow you get to choose again and maybe you make different choices feels a little bit empowering in a time when everything else must be really not empowering, you know, must be terrifying or, or worrying. And do we think this person who I assume is younger is suffering early concerns around this or do you think it's just the legacy of having seen her grandmother and been in her grandmother's house where there's obviously these adaptations made to try and accommodate and make easier what's happening to her? I think the second is entirely possible because, you know, I think those of us who live with this in your family, and it's probably most families really, when you've had someone close to you go through that, you must forever be thinking, hmm, this might well be coming. And, you know, and as the world goes on and we'll, we'll be able to tell whether we've got the gene and all the rest of it, you know, you'll know it's coming. So I think, I think we'll be hyper vigilant in a way that 
we might not be. I mean, I'm so, I mean, you know, it's not the same, but I, I can't remember whether I've taken my allergy medicine in the morning or not, you know, and, and, and I don't, I'm not worried that I'm more generally forgetful. I just, life is so busy that I, for, I forget my keys. You know what? The only thing she's done, the only thing she's forgotten, really forgotten in this story are her keys. Well, I can't tell you how many times I've gone out and forget, forgot my keys. So, you know, so far we don't really have any evidence that she's not well. I think it's, for me, it's the anxiety of that knowing it might be coming. Yeah. And I think that's really emphasized by that, that sentence at the end. It's painful to consider forgetting a twisted birthright of women in my family tree. You know, there's a sense that she's worried that there is, as you say, some sort of genetic predisposition. And then the world grows up around that, right? So you make your list thinking, I must, I might, this could be happening, this could be happening. So, you know, I, I know others who, when it runs in the family, are forever watching their spouses to see, you know, when they get to, even to our age, but, you know, a bit a bit older to see, is he, isn't he, is he, isn't he? And you think, God, that must be, that's a, that's a scary, terrifying thing to live with, you know, to wherever I think, am I just a bit tired or have I got a lot on my plate or is this something bigger? And it strikes me that this is an anxious person who maybe isn't even really experiencing it yet but is worrying about it and maybe even a young person I don't know yeah I mean it feels to me quite a young person I'm not quite sure why I I come to that conclusion but yeah although she says no children which makes me think maybe she's chosen not to have children rather than not no children yet or but so it makes me think maybe she's our age not quite 50 am I allowed to say that out loud yeah um, just about <laughs> I'm not someone who's who hides my age, but yeah, not just about fifty. So yeah, maybe I I, I put her at about my age because I don't. Th I think if I got to this age and didn't have children, I would say one husband, no children. But maybe a decade earlier, I might have said one husband, no children yet. So, but maybe I'm reading too much into that absence. I think there's something childlike about the litany of her jobs that's maybe what drew me to think she was younger. Just that it, you know that sort of repetition that we talked about earlier, but. You know, that's not really a basis to age her. And I love this, like, I mean, I actually love some of the descriptions. She teaches herself again how to use a clock, how to use an oven. And that idea that you have to relearn things, but you really, you know, it's not that you can't. You know, it's just that you, you have to learn it over and over again, which is a different thing of us saying, oh, that person can't read a clock anymore. Well, maybe they can, they just have to learn it, you know, and that requires a different pace, I imagine, and a different amount of support. You know, those sorts of, that is just such a lovely casting. And I don't know if she means it to be terrifying, but I find it a kind of comfort, really, rather than a, you know, a frightening thing. I'm sure she feels frightened by it. Or maybe she's trying to talk herself into being less frightened by it. And the things that she picks out to reteach herself. I think her lovely as well. Her husband's chat pams, her own body. Yeah, I mean, it would be interesting if you could, you know, had to reacquaint yourself with your body in terms of, well, I guess your shape, but also, you know, the scars. Some, you know, by my age, you've got various scars, you know, go, you know, and trying to figure out where they came from or whether you're willing to live with them or whether there's something else you want to do to, not that you can change your scars, but, you know, how what we take in in terms of food and what we put out in terms of energy affects that you know making different decisions about not that we always decide but you know will I exercise more how do I feel about how I feel in my own body when I get up every morning the idea that you might shift your view on that is really interesting because it feels like it's something that grows particularly as a woman over the period of your lifetime you know so the idea that you might relearn that some way in some way feels a liberation really yeah I mean I think there's definitely a sense of opportunity there that I wouldn't have recognized from 
the set of circumstances we've sort of drawn for this person, as you described it as a recasting, you know, it, it makes me think of all the opportunities we have to recast other things in our lives. And, you know, we can't always change the facts of what's happened, but there is sometimes the opportunity to change how we respond to them. Yeah, and kind of looking forward rather than looking back, you know, so much of what we carry with us and, and lots of the stories we talk about are the objects and, you know, all the kinds of things we bring to this moment, which makes us us, you know, that whole idea that you are only a product of every decision you've made up until this moment. Well, this story gives you the option to undo that and think, no, you're not necessarily from here on out you get to decide or you, you, you get to undo that and do things differently if you choose. You know, I was, I was looking at John Glenday's There's Not a Moment to Lose poem with a, with a group this week and it's the opening epigraph to his selected. You know, and it's that idea of like whatever's gone is gone. Now sing if you have something to sing. You know, say it if you have to say it because actually we only look forward and we, you know, let go of whatever's left behind. It's a really liberating thought but it's not one that we think of in terms of older people or people living with dementia or Alzheimer's. I remember I remember listening to a talk once um, about, you know, on the, for the benefit of a relative about dementia. And, you know, the real message from the healthcare professionals were, yes, it's scary, but actually people tend to be very settled. You know, as long as you give them a really comfortable, safe space, it's you that's distressed by the forgetting. You know, often they've forgotten, they've forgotten. And so, you know, it was a really interesting message to hear try and hide your distress because actually it's your distress they find distressing. If it's someone who's fairly well on in dementia, um, actually they've forgotten that they've forgotten you or they've forgotten that they've forgotten things about their lives. It's you picking at that wound, as it were, that's upsetting and your visible distress that is the problem. And then they respond to that. So if you can hold off and just meet them wherever they are, they often, you know, people living with severe dementia or advanced dementia are really happy. And so that's a really interesting way. It made me think of that lecture that I attended reading this thinking, yeah, you know, actually it's the rest of us that are mourning. Not necessarily something you choose. I mean, I, be, I understand that dream where someone's trying to give you a box or something and you're saying, I don't want it. Yeah, I don't want it. <laughs> what's yeah. in it <laughs> yeah, no thanks but I suspect that's the kind of you know passing down of that woman that heritage in the family so but I wonder I'd love to you know I'd love to think what goes in the next letter particularly once she's had a conversation with it about her husband because then the hiding of that anxiety strikes me as you know the release of that would be really um, cathartic and feeling like you're not in it alone and then you know there feels like there might be some resolution in the sense of finding a way forward or having someone else help you watch which would feel really freeing I think in some ways but or even just having that conversation that you've been having internally mm -hmm. verbalizing it yeah to someone else would make a big difference yeah wow what a what an amazing story eh? yeah beautifully written thank you Catherine for that yeah wonderful shall we move on to the poem yes please yeah so we have a poem by D.H. Lawrence today called Piano softly in the dusk a woman is singing to me taking me back down the vista of years till I see a child sitting under the piano in the boom of the tingling strings and pressing the small poised feet of a mother who smiles as she sings. In spite of myself, the insidious mastery of song betrays me back till the heart of me weeps to belong to the old Sunday evenings at home with winter outside and hymns in the cosy parlour 
the tinkling piano, our guide. So now it is vain for the singer to burst into clamour with the great black piano, appassionato, the glamour. Of childish days is upon me, my manhood is cast down in the flood of remembrance. I weep like a child for the past. There's something lyrically listy in that that reminds me a bit of the the list in our story. Yeah, definitely. And there's a there's a lovely rhythm to it that feels musical, which sort of conjures the music that's the subject, which I love, you know. But then looking at the poem, you know, it is that thing of, I mean, he's lamenting having lost that moment, you know, and wanting to, you know, he's now a man, but wanting to, you know, sort of project himself right back in under that piano, pushing his mother's feet. A bit like, you know, I think our narrator in the story wants to go back and spend more time with her grandmother. But it does, yeah, it does, you know, that idea that he, the heart of me weeps to belong to the old Sunday evenings at home. Yeah, there's a the cynic in me thinks it can't have been that wonderful. It's very nostalgic, isn't it? And the rose-tinted spectacle springs to mind. Yeah, and you know, as I'm reading it, or as you were reading it, I was thinking, oh, I wish I'd created Sunday evenings for my children. You know, no chance. Hymns in the cozy parlor with the tinkling piano. Yeah, but and also it makes me think, it probably wasn't, you know, the cynic in me thinks it wasn't cozy, it would have been cold, and he was probably bored, which is why he's crawling around pushing his mother's feet. But you know, I, that, what's interesting to me about that is that we all have those memories, you know, that we think back to and remember, and they are absolutely rosy. I can't remember what it was, but I remember saying to my children, do you remember when we did this? And they were like, nah, it wasn't that like that at all. And I thought, yeah, we do, as we kind of box things up and put them in memories. I don't know, take, round off the corners, take off the edges, you know, that way it's like. For sure. I mean, I, I always think of the fact that somehow we got into this tradition of making pancakes for breakfast on your birthday. Oh, I think I might have had something to do with that because that's the American tradition too, yeah. You know, the children always remember it as, oh, pancakes on your birthday for breakfast. <laughs> I always remember it as absolute carnage, trying to get the pancakes cooked and on plates and still not be late for school. <laughs> Word of advice to younger mums out there. Set yourself, you know, I remember thinking that when I did this the first couple of times, I never thought I'd be doing it the rest of my life, you know, and also every year up the ante, can we put Nutella in the pancakes? Can we put this in the, you know, stick to the basics. Yeah, the, the one that can't, has come back to bite me a few times is letting them choose what birthday cake they wanted. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and then, you know, it got to the stage where one of them went to the library and borrowed a book of cakes. Was that the honeybee year where you had to make a hive? It was beautiful, but it was amazing. Well, no, the worst one was the NASA space shuttle that you baked a sponge in the shape of a square and then you got this really complex paper template that was in the back of the library book that I had to photocopy and lay on top of the square and cut into all the right sizes of triangles and rectangles and then put together so that it resembled the, the space shuttle. I mean, my version of that was a vo volcano <laughs> and I remember the volcano cake. Your husband was at that party and he said to my child, what's next? Next year, an earthquake? And I was like, you're for it, mate. <laughs> you can, I don't know how you make the earthquake because it did make the volcano erupt. 
But I thought, yeah, I've got, I've got to scale this back. I think the next year was an iceberg, which was a lot easier. So anyway, those, yeah, we, we mothers remember them differently. Let's hope the children keep the shine on those memories. So exactly. yeah, so we don't, we, what we wonder about you, DH Lawrence, but you're not around to ask. So there. It's quite sentimental though, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. It's sweet. And I like the, I do like the rhyming in it, but yeah, yeah. It's sentimental in a way that, you know, the story isn't. So I prefer Catherine's story, but it's a lovely pair. It's a different way of thinking about things. So I think that's all from us today. Thanks so much for, um, for joining us for our September podcast with Open Book. You can find out all about the workshops we run and the groups we run and our events at the Wigtown Book Festival on our website at openbookreading.com. And um, you can catch our next podcast at the beginning of October. But until then, thanks for having us in your ears and thanks for joining us. 